0: Welcome back to Like a Bigfoot Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward, and this is episode number 166 of the show. Um, I'm really excited to share this week's story. Uh, It was with uh, an athlete I've been wanting to uh, kind of reconnect with for quite a while now. Um, So this week we're talking with uh, former Iowa Hawkeye offensive lineman and uh, Philadelphia Eagle Julian Vandervelde um i met julian and i was thinking about this on the drive home today i was like man that was 15 years ago that seems so or that's an incredible amount of time but uh i played against julian in high school and uh we get into the story a little bit here but basically i was a center um i was a small center uh, i was about 5,11, 200 pounds even though you know how they do in high school football they lie about your height and weight so the other team thinks you're bigger so in high school football stats, I was like 6'1", 220, uh, but I definitely was not, um, and I definitely stood out as kind of a smaller lineman. Anyways, long story short, Julian played nose guard for Davenport Central, and it was in my like top three most memorable high school football games. Uh, Julian was a beast, man. He... he going head up against uh, a player who of his quality of his of his uh, size and his speed and his intelligence uh, <laughs> it was difficult to say the least and uh the next day for us was homecoming and let's just say I could barely walk and just spent all of homecoming limping around uh good thing I didn't have a date <laughs> um but anyways the one thing I really have have respected about julian because you know once you play somebody in high school football and then they go on to college especially when they play for your favorite college team the iowa hawkeyes um you kind of follow their career and you're you're proud of them you're like wow this is someone who came from uh basically where i came from and look at where they are now um so i kind of followed his career uh i love the idea of him being an offensive lineman and i love talking o-line stuff and geeking out about being an o-lineman in this podcast because you know the o-line from some fans you know of football is kind of the position that is is a bit overlooked and and what goes on every play is a little uh like dramatic story like a dramatic battle between uh between two people every single play and to do it repeatedly over and over again throughout a game um is really cool, and so it was awesome. My favorite part of the podcast is when we get into some of his perspectives of memorable plays from an O-lineman perspective, and he kind of describes that feeling of just really getting a block as perfectly as you possibly can and I think it's so cool and and to hear it from someone who performed at such a high level as he did was really cool um one thing that really drew me to his story and you can check this out they did an NFL films uh segment about it I'll link it to the show notes it's on YouTube if you type in his name um but his post NFL career uh is really cool he he just seems like uh, a passionate guy who who has always had athletics be a part of his life and so when his nfl career was over um he took up a very uh unique sport he took up the highland games which is he'll get into it but it's essentially throwing really heavy things while wearing a kilt uh super cool um like i just i love when people find really unique passions uh to dive into and and especially with julian he describes being a blank slate going into any sort of athletic endeavor and it's so important and i think his story is interesting because it seems like he found this uh this recipe for success really early on and he's been able to use that in all sorts of areas of his life, uh, which is so cool. Um, and so when I originally reached out, I was like, "Hey man, I attempted to block you in high school, and now you throw heavy things uh, wear- while wearing a kilt, and I'm an ultra runner. Isn't it weird where life takes us?" <laughs> uh, and and so that's kind of how how we connected there. So, anyways, guys, I really hope you enjoy the show. Um, check out his uh, Twitter handle uh, at @batmanerveldi dot or dot com that's twitter dude uh at batman and uh yeah if you're a hawkeye fan um i hope this kind of like you know is a nice refresher after the rough week we just had after playing michigan so uh go hawks love the hawkeyes um really enjoy talking to julian and let's get right into it this is like a bigfoot podcast number 166 with offensive lineman highland gamer all-around good dude, Julian Vandervelde. All right, Julian, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm super excited to chat with you.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, uh, I was kind of giving you a little inside info uh, before we started recording, but um, the, the night I first met you was the most painful night of my life. <laughs> so, basically, for three kids
1: to say that i'm I'm impressed,
0: <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, in high school i was I was the center for muscatine, iowa and if you I don't even know if you guys remember- if you remember this at all, but if you looked at our line, it was like four guys who are six, five, and then one dude in the middle who looked like a hobbit who' was like five eleven. <laughs> And so, like, literally every team that year was like, oh, who's our best player on defense? Okay, we're going to put him right against the center because that guy's their obvious weak spot. And so it was like like you and Anger and Mitch King and, like, uh, Bruggeman for Cedar Rapids-Washington. Dude, it was brutal, man. It was a brutal year. That is
1: terrible.
0: <laughs> Just Hawks on Hawks. Yeah, basically. Ugh. I played against, like, half of the Iowa Hawkeyes that year i feel like um but you would they you lined up like five yards off the ball and you sprinted at me and you're like a smart dude so you timed up the snap count and so you were like in my face when i snapped it and i just got brutalized it was it was rough man
1: <laughs> well i i would i would say that i apologize but I don't know that I I even remember it. I think the CTE has gotten to me at
0: this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the lineman mentality. I wouldn't even accept your apology. I would be like, no man. There you go. That's it's right. football, dude. Part of the
2: game. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and ever since then, you know, me and my friend or my buddies are all like, "Do you remember that night?" And I was like, "Don't even, don't even talk to me, man." <laughs> Why would you bring that back up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so uh, it. Like randomly I ended up uh I think I heard an interview with you at some point and you talked about um the post football career uh you know like dive into the highland games and that just completely captured my imagination so so I definitely want to get there but I kind of want to hear like what was your you you seem like you were like a lifelong athlete so, can you kind of like dive into like when you're a kid like what what kind of athletics were you involved with then?
1: So well, I did a little bit of everything um you know if it was if it was available to me, I tried it um you know so i mean started off like most kids locally here started off playing dad's club soccer and then you know transitioned into into little league baseball and uh you know dad's club basketball and uh you know rising nights football here in the quad cities and the one thing that i never got to do i really wanted to try uh hockey but uh, uh you know my mom's a single mom uh you know and uh, you know working uh, a couple jobs and and, you know enough to put me into just about anything i wanted but that was kind of where she drew the line she's like no hockey's too expensive there's too much equipment plus you don't know how to skate I was like yeah, that last part doesn't really have anything to do with it i don't know why you would bring that up but uh you know we kind of decided that, you know if, if there was something that i wanted to do uh i was going to do it um and, and she was going to make it possible for me so you know not just sports but uh you know a lot of extracurriculars um you know kind of building my my different interests uh into the, you know, the quote-unquote renaissance man that I've kind of been known for today.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. Well, so I guess it kind of sounds like you're a renaissance man just from the get-go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it had to be.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the whole kind of uh, debate? Not even, I don't even think it's a debate because I don't, I, I'm i sure I'm going to be on your side here, but like where where you have parents who like specialize their kids in sports versus parents who are just like yeah do whatever do all of them that's you know what i'm assuming you fall on the do all of them side
1: i do and i just oh it drives me absolutely insane just ridiculous the you know i mean i i I, it's one of those things like it's up there for me with like anti-vaxxers and flat earthers like the the parents who don't uh who, who you know have their kids just play baseball that's all they do is is travel baseball, right? Year round, like you know, twelve months a year, you know, in the winter they're doing uh, you know, they're they're off doing um, you know, clinics or whatever, and then in the in the spring, summer, and fall they're playing travel league baseball. And it's just like, oh my you know, everybody's it's expensive and it takes them away from other sports and other activities that they could be doing. And um you know and I've I've talked to people from multiple other uh industries uh, you know, who complained about how it's how sports special specialization is just it's it's killing youth sports in general, yeah. uh, you know, and school sports, because you don't you don't have the, the athletes who, uh, you know, who who will go out for multiple sports. So the kids, uh, you know, that are playing just one sport, well, there's only so many kids to go around. And if you've you know, if you you're from a school like mine, where maybe, you know, two hundred you know, boys go out for sports total in the year. And normally, you know, if they all went out for four different sports or something, you could put together a pretty good team. But if you, you know, if every one of them only goes out for one sport, you know, you you only got maybe, you know, 40 kids going out for each sport. And I'm using simple math here, but besides just the, you know, the the, the things with like injuries, you know, you get injured more often playing a single sport because you're overexerting yourself uh, in certain areas. The, Lack of general athleticism, uh, you know, you're you don't build the sort of, uh, you know, general athleticism and, and camaraderie that you do when you're playing multiple sports and you, uh, you know, you're cross performing and I just it's one of those things that I could I mean we could record an entire podcast of me just <laughs> just pissing and moaning about uh, you know about how sports specialization is uh, is killing youth sports in general but yeah. I don't know it's yeah I'm with you on that
0: yeah man well I gotta think like as a parent you know my kid just got done with like five weeks or six weeks of five-year-old soccer and that was great like I love five weeks of five-year-old soccer but if it was year-round I might lose my mind
1: right (laughs) brutal
0: yeah that's brutal that's crazy man so yeah um you started playing football in high school um and when when did it kind of like hit you like oh like i'm pretty good at this like i'm i might be able to go to college and and continue my career
1: well i really thought i was gonna play uh baseball until uh probably uh sophomore year of uh of high school um you know i was on a uh the davenport east little league team that went to the little league world series back in
0: 2000 i didn't know you're uh, on that man
1: yeah, I was I was the big first baseman home run hitter from from that. We ended up uh, second in the country, third in the world um that year and, and that was really cool. So I always, you know, I, I was kinda like uh, there's a weird stat about the number of kids who play uh you know, in the Little League World Series and then go on to play professional baseball uh and it's like almost no one
2: who really? plays
1: who, yeah, who makes it to the Lily World Series. Like, we're all so serious about baseball at that age. Although, as kids, it's still just kind of a game for us. But, uh, you know, so many of them are, and maybe this is part of the the single sport thing, is, you know, they end up branching out and playing other sports. Um, and so very few of them wind up actually playing baseball for, uh, you know, any considerable length of time.
2: That's uh, crazy. And I just,
1: yeah. And so I, I ended up getting to high school and figured out pretty early on that, uh, I liked hitting people more than I liked hitting balls, and uh, you know, by the time I was a, a sophomore, I had essentially determined that uh, that that was the direction I was going to go. I was I was too I was too big uh, for for baseball, really. Um, I had become a contact hitter. I had changed my swing, and my you know my hitting percentage was crazy. But they just wanted me to be a slugger, and uh, and I didn't want to be that, um, you know. But on the football field, I kind of found myself and uh and learned somewhere you know during that sophomore season was when I kind of figured out you know this was something that I could probably do at the next level too
0: I think it was probably when you were just bashing me across the face
1: (laughs) that may have been part of it
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was really fun uh yeah man dude that's okay so that's super cool um and like always an Iowa fan or or was there other teams on the table or
1: no, I mean I was born and bred a, a Hawkeye. I, I was I had offers uh, from like Stanford, Kansas, Michigan, Georgia Tech, uh, you know, a couple different places. But uh, you know, at one point it was the the what came down to the choice was uh, was I I hadn't received an, a scholarship offer from Iowa yet. Uh, I was kind of waiting on it to see if it was going to pop. But I had the one from Stanford, and Stanford wanted me to come out and play defensive line, and of course. That you know, you talk about the quality of schools, quality of education, and you know where connections can take you down the road. Like Stanford's about as good as it gets in that regard. Um, but at the time, they were terrible. Right? That was before Harbaugh got there and turned them around. They, they were just—I mean, bottom of the barrel. Uh, and so for me, uh, you know, as, as great as the educational aspect of of Stanford was, I was—I thought I was going to be a a doctor or a writer or something, you know, the Iowa Writers Workshop. I was like, well, if nothing else, I'll just walk on to the Iowa football team to play offensive line. Like that was my my deterrent my decision was between having a full ride scholarship to Stanford or walking on at Iowa, and I was leaning towards Iowa even then. So, wow. Once the uh, once the the offer came through, it was all over at that point.
0: Yeah. Did you grow up like going to Iowa games and or like watching them on TV all the time? Yeah.
1: Yeah, they were I was actually more into uh, the basketball team when I was younger, but then as I got, uh, you know, as I got older and, uh, uh, you know, and, and basketball, I'm one of the worst basketball players you've ever seen in life. Um, so after, once that uh, uh, kind of wore off for me, it was like, well, you know, if, uh, if I'm going to be playing football, I better actually get into it. Uh, I don't think I actually watched my first football game until I was like eight or 10 years old. Um, you know, I didn't watch an Iowa football game until, a little after that, but I, I vividly remember like the, you know, the 2002 season with the, uh, you know, with gallery and Steinbach and, and Brad banks and all them. And I remember, you know, the, 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 the outback bowl against LSU, um you know, the, the catch from Warren Holloway and everything. Oh, best you moment know, those, ever. Are, those <laughs> Yeah. Those are those, those, you know, moments that are drilled into my mind um, as being, uh, you know, immortal moments in Iowa Hawkeye history.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. So, like, what was it like when you got to Iowa City and you joined the team and and all that? It was great. Uh, it was kind of
1: surreal. You know, I was, I I didn't really, I didn't really feel like I belonged there because I was, I've always been a small lineman above the high school level. Like from once, once I got to college, I wasn't, I wasn't a big kid anymore. Um, I was always one of the the smallest guys, um, and so I just kind of. Uh, You know, put my head down and went to work every day, and that was that was just my mentality. I I was coming in behind a just monstrous recruiting class, right? Coming off of those really successful years, um, you know, in the in the mid two thousands, there the early to mid two thousands with Kirk, um, you know, the the offensive line. I think that I like the year before I got there, they'd had um, like four offensive line recruits that and like two of them were, were four stars. There was a five star or something like that. Like they were, wow. uh, you know, they had a couple of army all Americans. It was just an outrageous uh, recruiting class the year before me. And so my whole mentality was, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get my education. I'm going to keep my head down, keep my mouth shut, listen to everything the coaches say. I'm just going to grind it out for four years behind these incredible uh, athletes And, uh, and when I, you know, I'm a senior, uh, and they've all graduated, you know, I was like, I'll start for a year and, uh, you know, maybe get a chance uh, if I have a really good year to, to get into an NFL camp or something as a free agent. Like that was kind of the, the mentality that I had coming into it. And, uh, uh, and I don't know, somehow that just wound up being, uh you know the the attitude that allowed me to kind of you know cross that that threshold from uh undersized uh you know guy to uh, you know just a four year starter i don't know where exactly that happened but uh,
0: <laughs>
1: somewhere along the line
0: <laughs> that's great well i mean it has to be something with your mentality or or the way you uh you know, kind of like meld with a team, right? Or like, do you give any credence to that? Like you were just like a really good teammate and, and smart and able like kind of figure things out.
1: Um, yeah, I think a lot of it was just coachability. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot, there's a lot to be said for, uh, for, for doing things the way that the coaches want you to do them. Um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of have it uh, in their minds that, uh, you know, that they have the answers, um, you know, the, the further up in the sport you get, um, the more guys you find are are humble and willing to change their technique, uh, you know, to whatever their coach wants them to do. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's a, a testament to the fact that that's the kind of guys that make it to the next level are the ones that are willing to. To change what they're willing, what they're capable of doing. So I was actually kind of fortunate coming from a program at Davenport Central. That you know, as as terrible as that uh, the memory of me running you over was for you, I can almost guarantee you we lost that game to you guys. Um, I think we won uh, four games in in four years while I was there at the varsity level. Wow. Um, so we were not a good team, um, and so for me, I really didn't have. Like a you know, a place that I was even starting from when I got there, it was legitimately just like mind blank slate, wipe it all away. You know we didn't really have a serious lifting program at Central. We had BFS, which I you know learned was uh, was not super, super great for your body,
2: yeah, uh, yeah, the way
1: that the weight room. So everything about the Iowa program was was just me starting at a blank slate and doing everything the way that they told me to do it. Um, as hard as I could, uh, and so that that wound up, uh, I guess talk, you know, hearing some of the vets, or I call them vets, the guys, you know, who are a year or two older than me, now when we all get together for like alumni gatherings, hearing them kind of talk about, you know, me and what they saw in me coming in, uh, you know, I think that was the thing that really endeared me to that team was my my willingness to just basically shut up and, and, and put in work, uh, you know, and, and, you know, run, run, run until I puked and then get back up and run some more, or you know, lift until failure and put it down for a second, get back under it and try it again. And, uh, you know, just, I was so bad when I got there, like I had nowhere to go, but up.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well that's, I mean, when you like kind of research success, a lot of times people say, going into something with blank slate or um not necessarily it's weird it's like you don't want to have expectations because i mean you want to have some sort of expectations that you're trying to hold yourself to but at the same time if you go into something and you're just open to the experience and you're open to um the ups all the ups and all the downs like along the way there's something really beneficial to that yeah absolutely yeah that's cool man Well, and you know as an iowa fan like i'm a huge kirk ferentz like i just think that guy's awesome i i one yeah. time i was at a a coaching conference um because I, co- I coached in iowa city iowa city west for a couple years just like the freshman football team but we went to a conference and in the middle of the conference some guy in the crowd like coach ferentz is talking and some guy in the crowd starts having like chest pains and like like a superhero, Coach Ference is sprinting past everybody, and like gets to the guy and is like holding his head and is like directing like somebody call nine one one and all this stuff. And I was like, this is crazy.
2: <laughs> Holy smokes!
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, as a leader, I just I look up to him so much. I think he's he represents the some of the concepts of like stoicism and. And just really like logical thinking and not letting his emotions kind of get a hold of him um I'm sure as a player, you probably have a you know your own perspective
1: yeah i mean it's it's tough with coach because he's it he is what you what you see is what you get yeah like there there really isn't um you know there's uh you know i i get that question a lot, like do you do you have a you know a perspective on Coach Ferentz that the rest of us don't have? <laughs> yeah, like you know there is what can you tell us about Coach Ferentz? You know that like how is he in you know in the locker room or whatever? Like he's he's the same all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best thing about it. like when he does his press conferences. That's not just him, you know, not giving the media anything to talk about. Like that's legitimately the way that he is in the <laughs> locker room. He doesn't talk shit about anybody. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, like, he's not a big rah-rah hype-it-up guy, you know. it's He's just very even-keel and everyone do your job, uh, you know, do nothing but your job and do it to the best of your abilities and trust that the people around you are going to do their job, and if everyone just does their job, we're all going to be okay. That's <laughs> just the way he is.
2: Yeah,
0: I love it. I love the simplicity of that, though. It is.
1: It's great.
0: It's like, don't complicate things. Just do your job and you'll be fine. Um, He's the best. (laughs) So eventually, like, when did you realize, like, I mean, I guess you said going in, you had the goal of possibly walking on uh, to like a practice squad of the NFL and stuff like that. But like, when did you realize you were getting some some traction and and it was a real possibility? Um, to to play or to move up? Ah, uh, to move up, like to go into the NFL.
1: Oh man, I don't, know. I don't know. I think it probably wasn't until you know senior year. I think, um, you know, I was still just I I was I, I came off a a shoulder surgery going into my second uh year as a as a starter or a third, I can't remember, um, but it just you know i i had all these plans uh going into my uh i guess it would have been my my true or no my red shirt um junior season and uh had shoulder surgery kind of derailed me um a little bit but we had a great team came back from it and that was our orange bowl year um you know and everything was was great uh and and then just kind of came into into senior season with this idea that okay, uh, you know it's it's not enough to just be uh, a part player at this point because I think I was the only I think I was the only uh, senior on that offensive line. Um, yeah, because I mean the the recruiting class, like I said before, me had been so insane that like my recruiting class for the offensive line. Was me and then Josh Keppel and Kyle Hagman who are walk-ons. Uh, so we, um, you know, so I was the the only guy on scholarship uh, in that senior class that was an offensive lineman and starting. I was like, I need to, you know, step up and take on, uh, you know, more of a leadership role, and uh, and so you know, just more hours of film study, uh, you know, more more work on the field, more work before practice and after practice, and uh you know it was more for me just about kind of you know showing the younger guys how it's supposed to be done and in the process of doing that I know the first half of that season um you know I was I was playing really well I had kind of a rough game against Arizona but uh you know came back and and in Big Ten play we were doing really well and I was playing at a high level and you know we beat uh you know Michigan and beat Penn State and uh you know and at one point I was like man this you know I might have a shot at the next level like I don't know if I'd uh, necessarily get drafted, but I'll at least have a shot at it. You yeah. know, somebody will take a camp. And I mean, you look at the numbers of guys who have played under Kirk Ferentz, who played at Iowa, uh, especially on the offensive line, but uh, just at, across the program in general. Like if you're if you make it to Iowa and you are a senior and a starter, you are almost guaranteed to at least make make it into somebody's camp if you want to.
2: Yeah, I saw right? like that. If you want to keep playing football. Other...
0: Did you see that stat that they put on? Yeah. Uh, that, stat, that Ridiculous. Crazy, stat. Man. It was like 80, yeah. I can't remember 86% or something. Yeah. It's like 86
1: or 87% of, of Iowa starters go on to, to, you know, play at the next level or at least, you know, make it into a camp. Um, so I knew I was going to have a shot somewhere. Uh, but you know, I, I really, I was just so focused on that season and, Uh, You know, we had some tough losses. um, But the thing that, you know, that they teach and preach at Iowa, so much of it is about, okay, uh, it's not, you know, about, you know, that particular game or like the next game. It's all about, um, you know, the next play and focusing on what's coming up, uh, what's coming up next. I was never really thinking about the next level. I was always just focused on what was happening at the moment. Um, And so in the – You know, I I didn't think until after the season was over about really, you know, the possibility of going up to the next level, but then they have those meetings with you, um, you know, where they bring in all the seniors and they're like, you know, these are what you look for in an agent, uh, you know, for those of you who go on to the next level, like these are things to look out for. This is what we, the resources that we have to help you if you want to go on to the next level. And, and I think that's really when it kind of becomes real for you.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, man. Dude, that's crazy. When they said that, were you just like, whoa, what do you mean?
1: <laughs> like... No, I kind of, a, a little bit. It was kind of, you know, it's, you don't really know anything about it. You, you've you spent so much time, uh, you know, worrying about, uh, you know, the next play and your, uh, the next game and the, the guy that you're, you know, playing next to and, you know, and doing, you know, what you can for the team uh, that you don't really think about. Uh, you know, the NFL until it's time for the NFL. Uh, and so, um, you know, just kind of playing your part. I don't think sometimes you realize how big of a part that is until it comes time, uh, you know, to, to go to the next level. And and somebody's like, yeah, you were, you know, we've been watching you for a while. Like, wow, really? I just kind of, I was just kind of showing up and going to work, but that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely like the lineman mentality. It seems like you know, like the I just show up. Um, you're not really like looking for praise necessarily. I mean, you know, and anyone who is a lineman in football knows, like, you don't always get praise <laughs> for all the good things you sure. do, but you definitely get hear about it when you mess up.
1: Yeah, don't if you want if you want you know praise and accolades. Don't be an offensive lineman. <laughs>
0: That's why, like, okay, so I teach seventh graders now. And, you know, I talk to the football kids and I'm like, what position are you? And then some of them, you know, they look ashamed for a second and they're like, I'm a, I'm a guard. And I'm like, that's the best (laughs) position, man. Like I try to like do the extra, you know, like build them up even more. Heck yeah. Yeah. I'm like, that's the best when you, so, okay. What's the, what's the greatest moment as an offensive lineman? You know, like, can you describe like a certain plays where you're like, this was just like the best moment ever
1: i mean it's it's hard it's 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 very difficult um because we we do take pride in weird things yeah <laughs> uh you know as as Lyman you know like i i remember i remember daniel Murray uh you know in his uh in the kick to beat Penn state when they were you know undefeated ranked number two or three or something Dude, like that, that in was the crazy. country yeah uh you know sophomore year but uh I don't you know I, I I remember I don't necessarily remember it for the kick itself like the kick is cool and what happened after the kick <laughs> and the celebration like I don't really remember any of that what I remember was me and Kyle Calloway in the middle of that thing you know we were on the right hash so me and him were on the left side in the middle of the field next to the long snapper which means that that's where the four biggest strongest dudes from Penn State lined up across from me. And so it's four against two, right? And you get these, you know, Penn State's one of those schools that's always full of, uh, of you know, five-star talent. Uh, you know, and here's me and Kyle Calloway just trying to, um, you know, hold, hold these guys off. And I remember we got, you know, we got ran over. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, we held them off long enough for him to get the kickoff and uh yeah. you know and so it's just that it's <laughs> that doing your job well enough for long enough to let someone else uh you know make the kick or make the pass or or you know, get the block or whatever. Like those are the the things that we take a lot of pride in, dude.
0: I hope. Um, yeah, I hope one person listens to this podcast and then re-watches that play and then like sends you a message and is like, <laughs> "Dude, I watched you guys get destroyed, but you got destroyed slow enough that they didn't block it."
1: Yeah, that's what it's all about.
0: <laughs> that's awesome, man. What What about like the moment you're? it's like a run block and you're like really driving them back and they're about to just give it up. What, like what's that moment? Like,
1: It's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) you know, the, when, when you feel them start to lose balance, you kind of know what's, what's happening. I always, I think the, you know, when, when it's a defensive lineman, it's more fun because they are, you know, because, but, but that's the thing is you do battle with those guys all the time. Um, you know, so you're going to get some with them. Uh, you know, they're going to get some on you. It's just you try to get more than on them than they got on you. Um, you know, the the ones that that I think are are more fun are the ones where you know it's coming before the you know before it happens. Um, like I always remember uh, senior year when we were playing Michigan and there's uh, we were running a, an inside zone to the right and I just I remember we had I had watched films so many times of their defense playing this, you know, running or whatever their base defense was against this play. Like, I knew the linebacker. I knew his number. Like, I knew his name. I knew everything about him. Um, And since it was a 3-4 and I was the guard, you know, I was going to take the step, check the knee, and then I knew exactly where he was going to come down to, like the level he was going to come to. I knew exactly the technique and the position he was going to be in, and I knew exactly where I was going to hit him and it was just like autopilot like i'd seen it a thousand times before on film and sure enough i took my step checked the knee turned up field and just took that power step right into his chest and just crumpled it like a sack of bricks and it was just it was it was just like i knew before the play even happened i knew exactly what was about to happen to this guy because I'd seen it on film so many times. And like, you know, those ones, those are the best. Those are the best ones where it's like, he never stood a chance, right? Yeah. That's, those are the ones that are most fun.
0: That's awesome, man. Is that, do you think that's any, I mean, it's obviously preparation, but do you think it's a little bit of visualization too?
1: Oh, it's a ton of visualization. Yeah, but you've got to, that's the thing is you have to have seen that happen on film to envision yourself doing it, to envision him doing the thing, that sets you up to do the thing that you want to be able to do. So yeah. it's kind of a combination of, of, of both.
0: You're like a chess
1: master, dude.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what the game The game is one big chess match. It's so much fun. I still have fun watching football, not so much the pros, Yeah, but I do like, I do like college. And I really like when you get like a really good, the one thing I like about the pros is that a lot of times they have more freedom, like with the quarterbacks and the linebackers to adjust. And I always remember there was, like, some play, um, I think it was Peyton Manning and uh, and the Broncos were playing, like, Luke keekley and, uh, and the Panthers or something. And I remember the play, you know, both of them, they called it in, they get set in their formations, and Peyton looks uh, at the defense, and he, you know, steps up, and he starts changing the offense, and they change formations and plays, and keekley like, listens for a second, and then he changes the defensive formations and changes whatever their calls were yeah. and both of them get back set back up and it's like okay you both made your move let's see who wins this round you know
0: <laughs> that's cool man that's like an old west like you know about ready to to draw on each other yeah no so, doubt that's cool man so you what's it like like what's the ramp up like from college to the NFL because that's an experience like such a small percentage of people actually get to experience
1: yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool. It's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's not as extreme, I think, as the, in my opinion, anyway, as the step up from high school to college. But then again, we're coming from, you know, uh, you know, high school um, that wasn't necessarily a, you know, a, a, a like a, a school that cranked out college talent every year um you know granted the class before me had austin howard who might still be playing in the nfl Dude, for all i a know he's beast man
0: <laughs> hey i gotta a give mom. a shout out really quick to my my friend shane dowdy because in our game senior year he like hit austin howard really hard and knocked him knocked him out of a uh, like two plays <laughs> he knocked him out for like two plays and we're super proud of shane
2: <laughs> very
1: nicely done sir yeah that's i mean that's a that's a whatever he was became like a nine or 10 year NFL vet or something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> but yeah, man, like I, the, even like, so I went to Wartburg for a year, which is division three, but even the speed I saw there from high school, I was like, whoa, this is a whole just different ball game. And then you'd ramp up to D one yeah. and it's even more so. And then going to NFL, I have to imagine, well, it has to be weird too. Cause you're, what, how old were you when you when you got drafted?
1: Um, so I was I think I was twenty three.
0: Okay. So you go uh, then well, and... going so
1: I was either twenty three or I was twenty two going into twenty three.
0: Yeah. So you go in and there's like grown men you're about to play against now. Yes. That's be weird. And
1: there and that's the it is the speed of the game is, is huge. But just the the fact that everyone that you're playing against is the you know, biggest, strongest, fastest dude that you played against in college, yeah. <laughs> right? All the best guys that you had to, that you had to, that one guy where your coach was like, okay, this is the dude we have to stop, right? He's averaging like two sacks a game, right? Like if we can, if we can keep him from making an impact, uh, you know, on the defense, then, then we've got a real shot at winning this thing. Like that's everybody yeah. now.
0: That's, that's insane. (laughs) Was there a moment like in practice or in a game where that realization really kind of like came to the forefront for you?
1: Well, I just, I mean, rookie year, I was trying to do the same thing there that I did in Iowa, which was shut your mouth, keep your head down and just do your work. And, uh, and we had a guy, um, last name was Dixon and I'm not going to be able to remember his first name, but we called him big Dix. He was like, he wasn't super tall. He was maybe, you know, six, three, six, four, uh, but he was like 400 pounds worth of nose guard. Um, you know, from, I don't know, Auburn or Alabama or something somewhere down South. And, uh, it was my first, you know, NFL practice in pads. Uh, and so, you know, rookie me coming out in, in pads that are a little bit too like shoulder pads that are a little bit too small and a helmet that's a little bit too big. And, uh, you know, it didn't fit my head right, so it was basically down over my eyes for half of the practice. And the first rep of one-on-ones, um, I, I drew him, uh, and he's, you know, he was whatever he was, four- or five-year NFL vet at that point in time. Um, and, I mean, it, they had the cadence, and he hit me so damn hard. Uh, I had never been hit like that before. <laughs> and I, I don't even remember if I got out of my stance. Uh, I just remember being on the ground um and somebody's saying welcome to the nfl (laughs) (laughs)
2: it's like
0: shit all right well here we go (laughs) yeah yeah do you still like in the nfl do you still get the butterflies of like first day of pads you know you know how you always got the butterflies of like oh man we're putting pads on for the first time this year and uh, oh yeah yeah.
1: especially in the nfl because you do so much more yeah uh throughout the year i mean well not necessarily there's you have more freedom and more free time, but it is, it is kind of interesting that, uh, you know, you spend so much of the year, not in pads, um, you know, especially because you're, you're not college students anymore, right? You're dealing with guys who are in their late twenties, early thirties, a lot of the time. So their bodies can't really take the constant hammering, uh, that we get, uh, at the college level. So, you know, practices get a little bit easier, a little bit earlier in the year. You practice for shorter, um, you know, you, you you practice in shells more. Uh, so by the time the season's over, um, you know, and you're whatever, six months until camp starts or whatever it is, uh, you know, that first that when you do mini camp, it's it's, you know, it's like spring ball. Like nobody really gives a crap. Yeah. Um, but when you when you finally are strapping up for the first time and in the NFL it's like oh preseason's here right this is where this is I'm not just you know I'm not just doing this on scholarship like it matters every practice matters if you you know if you put the pads on day 1 and they got you running with the twos and you 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 know, your first practice is a real stinker, like you might bump down to the threes and never make it back up to the twos again because the dude behind you plays you know okay. He doesn't have to play great. He can just play okay and you never get that position back and then they cut you in a couple of weeks. Like that's like the pressure to perform every single day is immense. But, you know, it just it makes it so that when you do strap the pads on, like go time is go time. There is no time for you to You know adjust to hitting somebody you better come out swinging
0: yeah yeah how did people handle that pressure that seems like a lot of pressure
1: it is it's a lot and that's you know not a lot of people make it um at all and even fewer make it to the point where you know they get benefits and stuff but um you know part of that is because it's a young man's game part of that's from the pressure there's so much more that goes on than just the the physical side of the sport
0: yeah yeah. How many how many years did you did you play there?
1: Uh 5 years in Philly.
0: That's awesome, man. I know just from reading a couple articles online like you had quite a kind of like unique NFL career. Mhm. Yeah, it was a bit of a
1: <laughs> bit of a run A little bit of a roller coaster <laughs> ride. Yeah, <laughs> up, down, and all around.
0: Yeah, so can you kind of, like, I don't know, just just real briefly, because I definitely want to get to the Highland Games, because I want to hear how you ended up going from NFL to wearing kilts and throwing heavy stuff. But um, <laughs> but can you kind of, like, give us an idea, like, like, I guess, what was your NFL career like, if you had to, like, kind of summarize it? Yeah, it
1: was, I mean... <laughs> It was cool, but there was so much turbulence. Um, you know, I came to Philly, and and Andy Reid was in his last two years, and uh, you know there was the whole thing with his son, and uh, and everyone kind of knew that he was on his way out. That Philly was about done with him. Um, you know, and, uh, and it was a very old, very veteran team. Lots of guys who'd been who'd spent a long time in the league. Um, and, you know, if so I kind of came into that environment and had the first year on active, uh, you know, roster and then the second year on practice squad and and then Andy was gone and it was, you know, coming from Iowa where Coach Ferentz had been there for
2: yeah. at
1: that in time, you know, already a decade, um, you know, and, you know, and look at, you know, now, uh, you know, to I'd never been a part of like a coaching staff changeover. So I spent a month in Tampa during my second year, which was miserable. I don't even consider it part of my career. Greg Schiano was the head coach. And it was the worst run organization I've ever been a part of. Um, but thankfully, I was only there for a month. But to go from that, and then Chip comes in. And Chip was more of what I had expected or come to you know expect of a coaching staff because he was a college guy. And I kind of still had that college mentality. Now, not a lot of other people did. There was a lot of turbulence with – you know, him treating all of us, uh, you know, kind of like college kids and, um, you know, and being very micromanaging and stuff. And a lot of the vets, you know, kind of not liking that and rebelling against it. But it was kind of a breath of fresh air for me in my career. Um, but when I blew my back out going into playoffs, um, you know, that first year, uh, my whole game, because I've never been a big guy, uh, has always been built on being smarter and quicker and more explosive. Um, you know, hang cleans, uh, speed squats, banded squats. Um, you know, uh, that was, that was where I lived was in the realm of, of short explosion, um, and being quicker than the guy across from me. And, uh, you know, I blew out my L five S one, it took me about a year, uh, to fully recover. Um, you know, and I never really got that quick pop back, um, that I had beforehand. Um, so I managed to, to squeak out another year, but that last year, that fifth year, I was so in and out. I was the 53rd man on the roster. So when somebody when a, you know, a linebacker rolled their ankle, uh, that was a starter and they needed to bring in a backup linebacker for a week. You know, I was the guy that they would cut, um, you know, and just be like, Hey, hang out for, you know, they were like, you know, we like you, we, you know, you bring a great character and great energy to the team. And, uh, you know, we want you We want you around and everything. We just, uh, you know, we, we got to do this for numbers' sake. So I would leave for, uh, you know, and hang out in my apartment for a week or two while they healed up that linebacker, and then he'd come back to the active roster. They'd cut the dude that they had brought in to be his backup, and then they'd bring me back onto the team. And um, so I wound up over the course of that five years between Philly and Tampa um, with a total of 23 transactions between... Uh, you know, being signed, cut, put on practice squad, brought up from practice squad, cut from, pra- or brought up to active roster from practice squad, cut again back and forth and all that. Um, and uh, 21 of those transactions were with Philadelphia.
2: Wow. Uh, which
1: apparently is an NFL record. So uh, every, it's kind of funny. I stay relevant because every, like, year or two, um, Philly will have somebody else in that position where they, like, come and go. Uh, from the uh, from like the practice squad or whatever you know, like a special teams guy who you know might be on the practice squad for two weeks and then cut and then they bring him back, then he gets bumped up to active roster and they cut him and. Uh, you know, and people start going, Oh, well, looks like we got another Batman Reveldi on our hands. Which is my Twitter <laughs> handle. And, and so I, I regain relevance. I make a couple of, you know, snarky, uh, tweets about it and, <laughs> and make a joke too. And people yeah. are like, ha ha, miss you around here, dude. And I'm just like, yeah, miss you guys too. And <laughs> it disappeared. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And when did, so when did the Highland games kind of come into, come into play?
1: Um, so that was after, um, so the, the last time I was, I was released from the team, uh, actually the time before that. So I was, um, I was in the, the off season. Um, or no, I guess it would have been after, after camp. So after camp, um, that last year, uh, I came back and I'm uh, partially at least of Welsh heritage. Uh, so I knew um, you know, that that was a part of of uh, you know, my history and I was very curious about it and I knew that we had a group of people who did Highland games here in the Quad Cities and I, I'd never you know done it before, but I thought it was interesting and uh, you know, everyone loves Braveheart and the idea of, you know, kind of the the ancient uh, you know, tests of manhood and strength for for a uh, you know an, an explosive strength athlete, my like myself seemed yeah you know, like it was fun. I've always loved like sumo wrestling and stuff like that. My obsession with Japanese culture is well known. <laughs> um, you know, much to those who know me. But uh, but the Scottish side, not so much the Welsh side. So I uh, during that the first time I was cut from Philly that final year was right after camp, and I knew it was coming. And so when I came home, there was a two week window. Where I wasn't playing football and I didn't know I was going to go back to Philly, so and so I, you know, called up the the guy who ran the Highland Games here and was like, hey, can I just come down and like watch a practice or something? I'm curious about what all this is, um, and he doesn't know me from Adam's house cat. I'm uh, not really a football fan or anything, uh, you know. So he's just like, yeah, sure. We always, you know, anyone who, anybody wants to come down, we're happy to to have you. Um, so I came down and I did it for like two weeks and then I got called back up to Philly. So I got just a taste of it yeah, uh, and thought it was a lot of fun. And so after that season, um, you know, when, when my future was really like, I knew I wasn't going back to Philly. Uh, you know, I had like one or two tryouts, uh, with other teams. Um, but I wasn't really sure what my future, what the future of my career was going to hold. And I was coming off of after, after, while I was training, um, early in that off season, I had broken my ankle. So I was coming off of a broken ankle and, um, you know, and I was still relatively in shape, but it, you know, kind of seemed like the, the prospects of me getting back to the NFL weren't really, uh, very high. So I decided that I was just going to, I was going to dive whole hog into this Highland games thing. Cause it seemed like a lot of fun and I was looking for a hobby basically. Yeah. Um, and it actually, you know, it, that first year, was really cool because ESPN caught wind of it, and I had done a thing for them. They came to Iowa while I was there and did a special on me um, because I'm a I'm a, a classically trained vocalist, and they make a big deal about me singing Phantom of the Opera at the at the Texas or the Alamo Bowl uh, talent show my freshman year. Um, so the the guys that did that special got wind of me doing Highland Games. And were like, hey. You know, we've got this this program where we, you know, follow NFL players who do like weird stuff in the off season. Do you mind if we come <laughs> and shoot this this video of you doing Highland Games? I'm like, no, that sounds like a great idea. So they came yeah. down to the the little Quad Cities to the Quad Cities. I City saw Highland it, man. Game. I
0: watched it this morning. It was uh, yeah. it's right in front of uh, John O'Donnell.
1: Yep, right across the uh, Centennial <laughs> Park there, under the bridge, and they still. The Quad City Celtic Festival still takes place every year. It's a it's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah.
0: What can you kind of describe some of the events of the high? Like if someone's listening and they're like, I don't know what the Highland Games are. Can you kind of like give us an idea? Like what do you do?
1: Sure. So the Highland Games is uh, is essentially made up of nine events. There's there's really six events, but three of them have like two different sized uh, things to them. Um, so it's the same event, just with a lighter side and a heavier side.
2: Okay,
1: but it's, a lot of it is precursors to what we think of as Olympic field events, right? Of The track and field, it's the field side. And I was a two-time state champion shot putter, so I was no stranger to the field events. Um, but you've got the the stone throws. There's two different kinds of stone throws. Um, you know, one is quite literally just shot put, but they do it with a with a rock uh, instead of with a shot put. Um so you got a 14 pound rock you gotta throw, and then there's a bigger a bigger stone that you stand that you throw standing instead of with like a glide or a spin. Then you've got weight for distance, which is kind of a weird combination of Olympic hammer and discus. So you got a, a big iron, you know, ball or chunk of iron uh, on a chain uh, with a handle and you and you spin your body uh through the, the trig, they call it um you know get to the front of the trig and you have to throw these these weights and so they have a you know 28 pound one and a 56 pound one uh the heavyweight for distance is one of the most hated events in all the highland games um
0: wait why is it why is try, it hated
1: Because oh, it's so hard dude. <laughs> to, like, pick up pick up a 56 pound weight that's bad in of itself now put it on a chain yeah and try and it oh my and so God. you're spinning your it's single arm it's not double arm so you are holding a fifty six pound weight by a chain spinning through a like three foot by five foot space without falling out of the space controlling yourself across the the trig and then you have to throw it for distance when you get to the end That's um, the technique is outrageous it's it's so freaking hard to do um so a lot of you and it hurts your hand something fierce so not a lot of people like that one but it's uh you know it's kind of a, a mark of if you're really good or not right like really good highly game throwers can throw the heavyweight for distance uh or at least really technically sound ones um but you got the hammer is, is the next one which is kind of like olympic hammer except it's stationary you stand with your back to the field and you've got a an iron ball on the end of uh, of a long uh, stick or PVC pipe, um, you know, that's like th- uh, three or four feet long, and you're spinning it around, um, you know, kind of over your head without moving your body. A lot of hip movement, a lot of hip swirls, if you will, um, and then you throw that into the field. The one that everyone thinks of is, of course, the um, the caber toss.
0: That's the right? giant, well, think, the giant yeah, like telephone,
2: telephone pole. pole, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah that's the one that everyone thinks of it's the most visually appealing it's kind of the one that makes uh you know the biggest impact a lot of oohs and ahs from that one from the crowd and um and it's i mean it's not far off to say it's just a telephone pole that you're trying to flip end over it <laughs> um, that's pretty accurate um but then you got weight for height you have to take that that 56 pound weight and you got to throw it up in the air as high as you can over a pole and uh, the sheaf toss, you're basically, everyone's got their own sheaf fork, which is really just pitchfork. Um, and you you stab it into a, a big old 30-pound bag of twine, and you try and throw this bag of twine up and over a high bar. Um, you know, so you have these really kind of, uh, you know, interesting events. That are, that are coming together and their origins are kind of a mystery, you know, not a lot of people can agree on where they all came from or where they developed from. Uh, but they have evolved into a lot of the things that we that we know of today, um, you know, within the, the scope of the track and field sphere.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is there any, like, legends, you know? Like, is there any, like, this guy through, I don't know, like, the biggest, what's what it called not a telephone pole but uh oh, cabers, so. yes a caber or is there <laughs> when i was watching I mean, the ca- ca- <laughs> when i was watching the caber toss like does it ever just fly up and hit you in the chin you know if you're not careful
1: yeah i mean there's <laughs> there's definitely safety element to it yeah uh um, there's you know there's uh, all of them have, have a safety element. Uh, you know, we, there's kind of like in track, there's the kill zone, right? Anytime you have a spinning event, um, you know, you always have the risk of someone losing control of it or flying out, slipping out of somebody's hand while they're mid spin. So everyone has to pay attention. Uh, things like the hammer throw go a long way. It's, you know, uh, it's like Olympic hammer in that you're throwing it, you know, over a hundred feet. Um, so it's, uh, you know, when you're down range, you kind of have to keep your head on a swivel and make sure you're paying attention. But yeah, things like the caber people, the caber slips out of people's fingers and crushes toes. Ooh. Um, if you, you have to time the pull on it, like where you try and actually, you know, uh, you know, explode upward with it and flip it end over end. Like if you time that too late and the front end of the caber hits the ground too fast, you can snap the caber in half and so then the you know the sharp end will come spinning back at you um you know if you do it too early sometimes uh you know before the top end is falling enough you're basically just pulling it back into your own face at that point instead of (laughs) the air. so there's a lot of technique and a lot of training that goes into it yeah uh, to make sure that you're doing things on
0: the up and up that's crazy man do you still do you still do it do you still uh train for this
1: it's been about a year since I have yeah. um uh, my demands of my of my uh, current career have made it more difficult yeah. um me to for me to do it plus a third baby doesn't help um you know with with personal time but uh I you know I do have the intentions of going back um it's it's kind of fun in that there there is a professional uh you know Highland Games circuit there are guys who who make Uh, you know, a little bit of money, and they get to travel and see the world, and, you know, these contests take place um, around the world. I was uh, in a strange, strange course of events. I got invited to throw Highland Games at an army base in Japan, which fulfilled a a 20-year lifelong dream of mine um, when it took place. But,
0: that's uh, you know,
1: but that was, yeah, that was one of the coolest things I've ever done. (laughs) But the, uh, but within the amateur circuit, you know, you got classes, there's, you know, there's lightweights and there's, uh, you know, the big guys. Within the big guys, you got, you know, C class, B class, A class, super A's. Um, there's masters. Uh, once you get above a certain age, they let you throw lighter implements if you want to. Like, it's not something where I have to be super competitive with it and do it all the time and be in season and out of season. You know, since I'm really just doing it for fun, it's, yeah. you know, next year, maybe I'll jump back into it and. Uh, you know, and just and have a good time. It's more about uh it's it's more about the the people that you get to be around who are all great people at these events and they all take place or almost all of them take place at like cultural you know fairs and Renaissance fairs and uh, you know, and, and Irish festivals and Scottish festivals and, you know, sweet corn days and uh, you know, all these like really cool events where you you go and you throw for a day and in between events or whatever, you get to go and walk around these, 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 uh, you know, these fairs and these festivals, um, you know, and, and really get to experience a lot of different, uh, you know, foods and cultures and people. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I just really, I really like it for that aspect. Of yeah,
0: it. for sure. Have you heard of the, uh, grandfather mountains Highland games?
1: Ugh, maybe okay I, a, I actually i i so i have an instagram that i almost never post to or check but i know that like i have friended um like 40 or 50 highland games uh <laughs> yeah that have their own instagram account that lord knows i'll never actually go and throw at but it's it's fun to kind of you know like the the alaska's got a couple highland games There's oh that'd new- be cool colorado
2: and stuff i'm like i'm
1: never gonna make it more than more than probably a three-hour drive from the quad (laughs) city but it's it's still cool
0: yeah the one in uh it's in north carolina i just the reason i heard of it is because apparently it's been 65 years there but uh you i heard about it because there's this marathon that runs from the uh appalachian uh, state stadium you run up the Uh mountains and you end by running around this track at the highland games there in front of like seven thousand people yeah so it sounds like super like a like a really cool like unique uh experience out there so but yeah man that's crazy so i guess like kind of to wrap up you know now that you're like on dad mode and and all that um are you still finding time like does athletics and and training and that stuff like still do you still make time for that in your life or is it is it more based around like uh you know spending those precious moments with your kids?
1: It's a lot more spending the precious moments with the kids. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm transitioning in my current. Uh, you know, job from a position that really didn't afford me a lot of time for anything yeah. into a position where I'll have a lot more control over my time. And I definitely want to make it a priority, um, you know, that I'm able to uh, to get back to, you know, training a couple times a week and, and getting myself back in some semblance of shape that isn't round and, uh, and old and bald and broken. Um but it, hey, man, uh, that's a
0: good shape, too, it, though. You
1: know? <laughs> as yeah, as I you know, as I get older, I'm slowly accepting that this is just who I am now. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I do want, uh, you know, part of, uh, you know, of time management is is spending, uh, you know, the time with my kids yeah. um, and my wife, because, uh, you know, for about the last year, I haven't really had very much of it. Um, so so that's kind of where my time has been. But at the same time, I do think that. You know, as my kids are are getting older and and you know they're they're seeing me, you know, not with baby eyes, you know, but with you know conscious you know human being eyes, and they're starting to remember, you know, have you know memories that they'll have for the rest of their lives. I do think that it's you know important that they kind of see me not just as this you know blob of of you know work 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 and then you know, come home and, and you know, rip Beyblades for a half an hour. Like, I want them to, you know, to see that, you know, that I'm, you know, that I have something to me, that, I'm, you know, I've been in shape and I can still be that way. You know, I like the idea of being, you know, kind of that world's strongest dad that we all kind of, you know, present ourselves to as our children. Like, you know, I've done some cool stuff in my life, and I'd like my kids to at least, when people tell them that, to believe it right and not just be like what that old dude no way man
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no i get it man i get it it's cool you the whole like wanting to be a superhero in their eyes is is really it's really cool and i think it's good to for them to see you doing something you're passionate about but also like i mean i always look at sports like it's play you know you're going out there and you're getting your adult play time really um mm-hmm. and for them to like actually see that and witness it and and see that that's a possibility when when they become adults is is super important
2: yeah
0: yeah man cool well dude thank you so much for coming on the show Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm glad you, uh, you just like maybe not be able to walk for like two days uh, back in high school (laughs) because ever since then I was always like, man, Julian Vandervelde is a cool dude. And then you would we would always hear you would hear like legends. You know how like Pat Anger, there was always legends about Pat Anger, right? But oh,
1: and I can confirm some of those. Me and him wound up at the same resort in Mexico at one point in time. (laughs) Oh yeah, all the stories about him were
0: true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. But you'd hear like le- like I don't know, where we were in Muscatine, you'd hear legends about Julian Vandervelde and you'd be like, Yeah, yeah, that's probably that's probably about right, you know? <laughs> but they were always good. They were always like, He's a he's a super good guy, like he's really just like really smart and really awesome and nice and stuff. I'm like, Well that's cool. Like that's good to know.
1: Well, we do try. Yeah, nice <laughs> so I'm man. I'm glad that kids are catching on.
0: <laughs> nice, awesome man. Well, uh, keep it up, man. Keep up the good work.
1: We'll do. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. All right, see, you, man.
0: And that'll do it for this week's show, folks. Um, huge thanks to Julian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we're we're both dads of three kids uh, under the ages of of seven, so <laughs> that means I know how. Uh, the beautiful chaos of that and how difficult it is to uh to get schedules to line up and and to be able to spend a free a free hour um really means a lot so i really appreciated it uh some of the things i learned from the conversation uh i really enjoyed the idea of being a blank slate i always try to keep that in mind when starting something new uh because it takes the pressure off you're going in you're like hey I'm a blank slate. Teach me. And it makes you moldable and teachable and coachable. Um, And that is such an important skill to to have. And it's such a cool viewpoint to uh, come into a new activity with. So um, whatever you're trying that might be new in your life, whether it's something for work or whether it's like uh, something you're working towards or some sort of athletic endeavor or a new relationship or whatever, go into it. As a blank slate, and and see what you can learn. Um, in the past, we've had people on the show. I think in, if you're a Hawkeye fan, go back in the past. I think it was one of the first twenty five episodes. Uh, we talked to George Kittle, and he said something kind of similar. He talked about being a sponge, being willing to learn from from anybody and everybody around you. And and like I said in the intro, I think Julian figured out this recipe for success right away and uh i think that's a huge factor in in what he's found in this life uh which is really cool and and just going into it having a positive outlook really being just passionate about the life that you're leading um will get you will get you so far uh so that was that was awesome uh also check out the highland games man check like go on youtube look up the highland games it looks awesome i want to go to an event i want to see what that's like i mentioned the grandfather mountain marathon if you're a runner out there um or an ultra runner check that race out everyone when i was when i lived in virginia every single person was like you got to do the grandfather mountain marathon it will blow your mind it's such a unique really cool experience so um Check that out and you can like combine these two passions, you know, Um, which would would be really cool. So uh, anyways, guys, we'll get back at you next week. Uh, I already have the show lined up um, and recorded. So um, it I'm sitting down with uh, with a athlete from the Denver area who had just finished the quest to climb the Centennials. That's the hundred tallest mountains in Colorado. Uh, We get a nerd out about some mountains, hear some really funny stories, uh, really entertaining stories and hear about, you know, all the literal ups and literal downs and figurative ups and figurative downs of his journey. Uh, All right, guys, we'll get back at you then. See you.